Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have an important special guest with us today. His name is James Whitford, and he is the CEO and founder of True Charity. He's also the co-founder and executive director of the first certified True Charity in Joplin, Missouri, Watered Gardens Gospel Rescue Mission. James earned his doctorate from the University of Kansas Medical Center in physical therapy, after which he worked in the specialty field of wound care before his transition to full-time ministry work. James, thanks for joining us. Doug, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we we got connected because you've been a fan of LCI for a little while, and we got to chat recently and got to know your passions. And I'm like, man, I got to have you on because it's a topic we kind of come back to pretty regularly on on the show, which is the issue of poverty. And some of my listeners who've listened a long time have known that when I was becoming a libertarian from sort of being more conservative, one of the reasons I didn't become more left-leaning is that I realized through some kind of just in my journey as a libertarian that the state really makes the issue of poverty worse. And it actually really harms the poor in in so many ways. Now, obviously, some poor do benefit from state-based programs. I understand that as, you know, not everything in every situation is absolutely terrible. But it was really important to me when I was becoming a libertarian that poor people had what they needed, that poor people could be taken care of. And even above that, for me, it was all about, well, how do we have shalom rather than just, you know, transfer money and all the things that the left tends to want to do. So this is a really important issue to me. It's near and dear to my heart, this among a couple of other, other, you know, sort of pet issues of mine. And so you and I had a great conversation a little while back over the phone, just the two of us. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more and let our listeners hear how a non-state-funded, non-state involvement approach to charity and poverty reduction can actually work. So you are my guy to talk to about that. <laughs> so I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear from you your story, like what what got you into it and where things are for you. Sure. Yeah. Let me give you just a little bit of background. My wife and I co-founded a mission in Southwest Missouri, a very small nonprofit 20 years ago. And compassion really was the driving force, Doug. That was it. I mean, we, we had a, a, a faith and a, in and a love for Jesus. And compassion is what really caused us to want to do something right? To do something to help the poor. And I I think that's a very good and a very common thing that God lays on the hearts of his people. And so uh, we began to do something. But the something that we were doing really wasn't affecting the change that we had hoped for. And we learned, you know, we learned that pretty quickly in the first couple of few years of being basically kind of like a redistribution center. You know, people would donate things and then folks who were poor or homeless would come in with various needs and we would meet the need. But it was really much more of a kind of a handout model ministry we were praying for people. Again, there was a lot of heart in it, but we just weren't seeing some of the fruit that we had hoped to see. And so 
we knew that we needed to change our model. We did a few things, but I think, you know, along the way, certainly one big point for us was coming across a book called Toxic Charity. And this book written by Robert Lupton takes the reader through five steps to dependency. And I'll just, I think uh, the listeners will really resonate and, and maybe love to learn these. The first time you give something to someone, they'll have an appreciation for it. The second time you give the same thing to that person, they'll develop an anticipation that you'll do it a third time. A third time, and they'll develop an expectation. And then a fourth time, they'll feel entitled to it. And a fifth time, become dependent on you for it. So appreciation, anticipation, expectation, entitlement, and dependency. And we knew that we'd been guilty of that. So we thought, well, okay, so let's change our model to where we're not just looking at every person coming through the door as a broken human that is in in need of charity and charity only, or that they're just good to be the recipient of benevolence and that's about it. So uh, we began to look at people as really as God would want us to, which is people that are made in his image. And so there is something noble about every person and there's potential and capacity in every person. There's a gift and a skill in every person. So we began to look at people like that and then welcomed them into partnership and actually developed a a model where folks are able to earn things they need. But, you know, to make a long story short, Doug, we really implemented challenge into our charity to help move from cyclic relief where people become dependent on relief and aid and instead help them move, you know, into development. So from relief to development, Mm -hmm. but it does require work. It requires challenge. The thing that happened when we did that, when we when we changed our model to what we know is more healthy, we actually had uh, a pace of about four thousand people a year coming through our doors, and you know we're a, a larger ministry uh, for this area. Uh, we went down to about thirteen hundred people a year, so we saw a lot less people coming through our door when we began to implement more accountability, more relationship, more challenge into what we were doing. The question is. Hmm. Where did they go? And that's when we realized, hey, they're, they're, we need to think about how to impact a community and not even a community, but systems that a lot of which have been birthed out of bad policy that deliver low hanging fruit to people that really don't need the low hanging fruit, that, that they could be challenged in some ways that would be better for them and the communities that they live in. And that was really the birth of the True Charity Initiative, mm. looking at how can we help leaders, charities, communities do better and more effective charity work, and then even consider how that could be used to influence policy makers to rethink what they're doing and how they might be interfering with uh, a more healthy process. Hmm. You know, I don't want to get too far afield here, but my my curiosity wants to know how long did that process of sort of transitioning take? And how did you deal with, I, I can, depending on how you answer that first part, the second part might be, how did you deal with, I guess, turning people away? Or was it that, oh, we don't do that any longer? I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if you can give us a sense of, of that transition period at all. Well, the, the change in what we were doing was, was gradual. There were a number of different things that we did. But when we look at one thing, uh, just the implementation of what we call our earn it model, which was the development of a separate ministry called the Worth Shop, 
We call it a worth shop because we believe that work awakens worth in people's lives. Hmm. And this is where people go to earn a meal ticket. They earn a night of shelter. They earn clothing or furniture, appliances, basically anything. If they're able to do something, then, then they'll go and earn that. Uh, and that's not to say there aren't times for relief when really like, uh, you know, it's a sub-zero night and someone doesn't have uh, socks or shoes. I mean, there, there are times when you just, you provide relief, but most people have the ability to, to earn something that they need and it's very good. Well, to do that, okay, to do that, when we had that ready to go, we went through a phase of about uh, two months two to three months where we were notifying people and letting them know, hey, this is, our model is changing. And uh, so we really thought that it would be worse than what it was. So we, because it was such a significant change in the way that we were doing ministry to go from a handout model to suddenly we're going to ask you to put in a little skin in the game for what you uh, need today. Mm-hmm. We thought we might, you know, empty out the ministry and not have anybody there at all, but that was not the case. But again, over, over time, we saw about half or more uh, folks that ended up uh, not being a part of what we were uh, requiring. But uh, we were, you know, again, took a couple few months to make sure we were notifying people in a lot of ways uh, that that transition was coming. And the results have been fantastic. So just, uh, you know, we've had it's such a more dignified way to approach charity work and really edifies people. Yeah. When we think about the quote unquote issue of poverty, I've often reflected, and and this could be true of any issue that we deal with that has become politicized. We treat it like an issue. We treat it like it's something we have to systematically, either from the government or from an organizational standpoint, sort of solve for or deal with or come up with a policy response to. And my guess is that you don't see this as an issue per se, but you see the human beings behind the issue that, that are actually dealing with it. I don't work directly in the kind of work that you do, so it's different for me. So I just want to get your kind of thoughts on that whole conundrum. For many people, it is an issue to solve rather than like, hey, there's people there. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't say there's an issue to solve. I mean, I guess you can, but if you begin to develop solutions or you know what you think are going to be solutions to an issue, uh, you're going to miss actually bringing about the flourishing that God intends for the individual. Mm. So it really is an individual issue. It's just not a. It's it's not the issue of homelessness or the issue of addiction or it's people. It's a person who's experiencing homelessness. And, you know, we have 105 beds that we offer through our various programs here. And any one of those individuals that we could go to and have a conversation, it's going to be completely different than the person that he or she might be sleeping next to. Mm. Every person has a unique background and situation. And so this reminds me of uh, something that Arthur Brooks wrote about one time in dealing with the difference between complicated and complex. I can't remember which book it was, but I I love the way he puts this. He says, uh, complicated is like building a jet engine. And that's a complicated problem. But once you've done it and you have like a blueprint for it, then you can just mass produce the same jet engine over and over again. You've solved the problem. But he says, "That's, that's complicated. Complex is more like a football game. 
Every single one is different, and there's no way that you can determine the outcome of a football game because there's so many different variables at play. It's, it's just impossible. It's complex. He says people and, and these you know, people struggling in poverty with addiction, people struggling with homelessness, those are complex individuals with complex histories and complex issues that can never be solved through a a socially engineered bureaucratic blueprint that would try to address a complicated problem. Mm. And that is what we see a lot of times happening through uh, policy right now. That's a really good way to think about it. It's uh, it's not complicated, it's complex. (laughs) And that poses completely different sets of questions and problems to, to deal with. It does. And it means that we're going to have to be relationally involved with individuals, which is what, you know, this is what God tells us. The name of our rescue mission is Watered Gardens coming out of Isaiah chapter 58, where God is promising his people that if we will choose the fast that he's chosen to help those in need, that we'll be like a watered garden and like a spring whose waters never fail. It's a beautiful passage. But in Isaiah 58, verse 10, he says, if you extend yourself, some versions say, if you give your lives to those in need. And so there's an aspect of a very personalized, close uh, relationship that has to happen between one individual and another when we're really helping a person. And we should never forget that. What are some of the challenges that we face when we try to help those who are poor? Or I just, I'm following this up with a question about we don't treat it like an issue, but what are some challenges that we tend to face when dealing with the problem of poverty with the people either around us or just generally? Well, the the problem's And I mean, I don't want to beat the drum too much here, but the problem that we are facing is really two different, two different ideas about how to address poverty. I mean, the one that we've talked about here where we're dealing with on an individual basis where there's relationship and accountability, there's a greater understanding of what's really going on in the person's life. And then the other solution that is the, you know, trying to uh, create a complicated, you know, looking at it as a complicated mm-hmm. problem and, and creating some sort of a blueprint solution. And so, you know, here's, it's a means tested welfare program. If you fall within, you know, 130% of poverty level or below, then you qualify for this particular voucher to do this and it's going to solve the problem. And what we find is that for us, Doug, this, the greatest struggle is how much that interferes with what would be good and healthy and helping people step into the flourishing life God intends and the communities that they're involved in. And so you really do have an, an interference in this principle. We, we teach uh, through our true charity initiative. We teach a lot about subsidiarity and the idea that mm-hmm. a person who needs help, we should first start with that individual and asking to respect the, that person's dignity and capacity. What can you do for yourself? But then what about your immediate family? Is there a brother, a sister, a mother, a father who can be involved? Are you connected to a church somewhere? Is there a church that could help? Is there a local mission maybe in the community that could help? We should exhaust all of that before we're looking at state-funded solutions or federally-funded mm-hmm. solutions. The, the problem is, is that the, the massive overreach of our federal government into the charity sector interrupts those natural ties, that natural subsidiarity that should exist. 
and it divides relationships or dissolves them and creates an unhealthy situation that was never intended to be. Mm -hmm. That's our biggest problem right now. And it's one of the reasons why we want to do a good job in our own model in Southwest Missouri, but we want to see more of that happening in other communities with other missions. And that's why we, you know, have launched our true charity initiative. Yeah. And and I could see how it could also sort of act as a way of absolving people of responsibility by saying, oh, well, I'm just going to outsource this through taxation or, you know, not feel as guilty about it because, you know, I pay a lot in taxes and, and I know that that goes toward charity work instead of, you know, sort of calling people to responsibility to love their neighbor in a hands-on sort of way. Right. It's, I mean, it, it's easier. You just don't get your hands dirty. If there's a, a government that can just take a little bit out of my pocket and, and deal with the problem and I go, uh, you know, gone about my way, then so be it. The, the yeah. problem is they're not dealing with it. And over the last 50 years, we've spent, what, $23 trillion on anti-poverty programs, but the poverty <laughs> rates ranged from 11 to 15 percent and really hasn't changed much. So, And, and that's even with an ever-increasing amount uh, into these programs that are being paid out you know, to individuals. We're, we're, we're really, the more we do, it does, it does not get any better. And so we should learn from that and, and realize there's a better way that we need to be helping the poor in our communities. Yeah, I mean, even if, let's just for the sake of hypothetical, even if the government programs were quote unquote working at reducing poverty, I don't know if that's even the most ideal way because the measure isn't, well, are there fewer for poor people? I mean, at an economic level, that'd be great. Okay, let's say there's only half a percent of our population is really poor. But, um, you know, if people aren't in community with one another, lifting each other up, you know, if the rich and the poor aren't communing, if you will, to think of it even more intimately, if they're not communing with one another in fellowship, then did we really solve the social problem? Are we really truly being Christians in resolving basically the brokenness that we see. And I don't want to under, under or downplay the, the role in, you know, keeping people out of poverty. But even in a hypothetical situation, I think that uh, we, we haven't actually achieved, you know, real social justice or real community and fellowship, even if the government were to, you know, able to economically, quote unquote, solve the problem. Oh, I agree with you. And I think that I, I could, I mean, you've said it perfectly. And I think it's a great reason why we should not argue solely on the basis of the government being ineffective. In other words, the fact that the government is ineffective in helping the poor should not be the the primary argument as to why government should not be involved in helping the poor. So it's simply not a role of government. Government's never going to be able to do a good job with it. And you're right. It will not allow for the proper relationships to occur that need to occur, mm-hmm. which is you know, brings me to a, just a thought on the church. I mean, the, and the church is such a great platform for what we call bridging social capital. Uh, I think, you know, I think it might've been Robert Putnam who developed that term, but the idea of uh, developing those ties and relationships 
that are outside of your own immediate circle of influence can be incredibly helpful for people who are struggling in poverty. I mean, it's a, it's a link to a, a new job or some new training that you didn't have access to simply because you were able to meet somebody or shake hands with somebody that you didn't know because they're not inside your immediate circle. Yeah. Well, the church is such a great platform for that because we all have the same spiritual need. We all have the same need for a savior. You know, we all need an eternal perspective. The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends socioeconomic divides. So what a great opportunity for those who are struggling with poverty to meet those who are not. Uh, you know, within the church context. So, uh, and you're right, the more the government's involved, the the less that kind of thing is going to happen. Yeah. Well, this kind of leads me to my next is the government being involved. In what ways does the state interfere with the kind of work that you're, that you're doing you, or just broadly, even maybe not specifically your work, but you can share both? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is the creation of uh, perverse incentives and so we see that all the time in a variety of different ways. Um, in fact, I mean, we have a long-term program called FORGE. It's our Center for Virtue and Work. And it's a 12 to 15-month commitment that guys make to character development and work readiness. And part of the commitment is I'm not going to be dependent on the government for anything. I'm moving toward a path of self-reliance. And uh, we just had. I mean, just a, I think it was two days ago, one of our students who left the program and in part of the reasoning that came about in our discussion with him, it had something to do with the stimulus check. So, so here's, you know, the indiscriminate uh, redistribution of, of wealth, actually, that's having to be, it'll have to be printed. I mean, it's not like we actually have that, but I mean, it's been just, it's been just given out indiscriminately to people who might be struggling with addiction issues, you know, who might be on a right path in a long-term program like ours. And it suddenly, uh, the temptation derails them. And, uh, so we see that kind of thing all the time. I mean, I, uh, even with, uh, you know, like housing first ideas, like which is, a HUD initiative, housing, a uh, department of uh, housing and urban development. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, housing first is this idea, Hey, let's just take a person and put them rapidly into a house if they're homeless. And, and so I have seen and can remember even a guy right now in my mind that I was sitting down having lunch with in our dining room and I had not met him before. And I said, so are you, you know, are you recently homeless? And he was a young man, Doug. I think he was 19, 20 years old. Mm. I said, I said, are you recently homeless? And he said, yeah. And I said, what, uh, what, you know, what's, what's going on? Are you're here in shelter? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm here in shelter, uh, at the mission. And I said, okay, well, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, I was living with my mother and my grandmother, but, uh, uh, an agency in the community said that I might qualify for my own place if I was homeless for a, a short amount of time. So I'm, that's what I'm doing right now. So here we have, wow. uh, housing and even with the new act that just passed the American rescue plan act, uh, we have $5 billion of emergency housing vouchers within that plan that are extended to 2030. And what that will do in communities, along with a lot of other housing initiative stuff that's a part of that plan, will create a kind of a, a drive inside of the agency leaders to find how they can get those people into those to use those housing vouchers. And it will unintentionally 
create a perverse incentive for people to leave some situations and be homeless so they can qualify. Now, not everybody's going to do that. But the point is, is that without knowing the individual and the circumstances that are going on behind that, that, that person's, uh, you know, case and their scenario, we can't do a good job. Mm. Yeah. Well, as you you and I both well know that the government creates perverse incentives for even people who are not poor. Uh, so, of course, it's going to it's <laughs> right. going to create <laughs> those problems, you know, on a, on a broader society. Well, the other thing is the perverse incentives on the people who are are willing to provide assistance and help. Um, you know, when you I, th- I think it was the um, when you raise the oh, well, I can't remember the name of it. It's the the level of charity that you give on your taxes is like the the general deduction or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you make that too high, then people are like, oh, well, it doesn't matter how much I give. It's not I'm not going to be able to write it off. So, you know, you have that incentive as well. Sure. Um, standardized deduction. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> well, when you, versus, were talking, versus versus when you were talking, it reminded me of kind of an unseen consequence. Uh, you know, I, it's just, it's really crowd out, right? It's when the private sector yeah. is being crowded out by government involvement. But yeah, those mm-hmm. who have a, would have a tendency to give more or to do more end up being crowded out. And it's a really hard thing to measure because when you're crowded out, you're not there. So you're, it's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. But yeah. one example was when uh, our former state governor, who wasn't a governor for very long, Eric Greitens, he made a cut in uh, in prisoner entry uh, funding, so uh, prisoner reentry funding. So folks coming out of incarceration needing some basics to get back to work, right? And so there was he cut a hundred, I think, one hundred twenty-seven million dollars out of the budget for prisoner reentry funding, and uh, there was a lot of angst in our community about that. And uh, and I remember a group saying, "Hey, would you be willing to talk with?" some local legislators with us about the importance of keeping that. And I said, no. And they, of course, were shocked. And I said, listen, I really think that if that's gone, there'll be some other uh, things that will come about as a result of its of that ab- the absence of that funding. And sure enough, when he cut that, we had one of our larger churches naturally step into that space and begin to provide some work boots and other things for folks coming mm-hmm. out of prison to be able to help them get the jobs that they need. And so that was a perfect example because that church never felt crowded out. They didn't realize that they were being crowded out. But when the government was, had stepped out of the picture, the church stepped in. And you know that's got to be happening on a grand scale that we can't even imagine. You know, I didn't share with you my outline, but you, you keep leading me to my next questions very naturally. I, I actually, the next question I have for you is, do you know, and, and what are some of the statistics you know of uh, on how Americans, are are they good at giving and volunteering? Are they bad? Has it gotten worse? How's that? What's the state of American individual initiatives toward relief organizations in poverty? Yeah, I, I don't know the current right now. And I do, I can see a graph in my head. I, I remember writing something, uh, I think it was with the Heritage Foundation, they were looking at some of this stuff. And there was a, a decrease in volunteerism over the last, I want to say 10 to 15 years. It hasn't been sharp, but it's been pretty consistent. And so it seems like we have, uh, uh, you know, less on that front that's been that's been happening but I don't have 
I don't have any numbers in mind right now, Doug. I just know that um, I think there's there have been less uh, less volunteers nationally in in the in the larger picture. Yeah, uh, we certainly have a lot of volunteers at work in our community, but uh, it takes a lot of work uh, to be out there and talking with a lot of folks and a lot of churches and and making sure that we're. Um, providing that opportunity. But one of the things that we do, we don't take any government funding. And we also don't think about, well, let's hire for another position to get filled. We are always thinking about how can we see the church engaged on a volunteer level. And so because we've kind of uh, confined ourselves within that scope, because it is our mission statement to serve the church and its mission to help the poor. That's the mission statement for Watered Gardens Ministries. So we've confined ourselves in some ways that demand that we are out there talking with folks who could potentially be in our mission, filling positions as a volunteer. And again, the more that you're uh, put in a place where that's the demand, I think the better that you'll do. But the more Mm -hmm. that there are other ways to accomplish things, I think the more we'll see a decline in things like volunteerism. Mm. Do you know how the pandemic has affected, well, your organization, I'm sure you can talk about that, but just do you know anything beyond that? Like, you know, how has it affected the type of thing that you're doing? Sure. I mean, I I think that this the stat that we have is pretty common among missions within our network, uh, which is a national network of missions that we're a part of. And I'm speaking about watered gardens right now, not true charity, but 40, 46% attrition is what we experienced, uh, you know, pretty immediately and in volunteerism. And uh, that has almost fully returned now, but not quite back to, to full scope. So yeah, it was certainly, I mean, a very sharp hit initially. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, many, many, many volunteers are retired. And so you're in that age bracket where uh, you're not maybe quite as safe and uh, might be a little more immune compromised for some reason or another. Mm -hmm. But I think that was pretty typical from what I heard on some calls nationally with other missions. That was pretty, pretty, pretty typical. Yeah. What about the, um, the Equality Act? I think you mentioned it, but how is that going to affect things going going forward? The Equality Act is potentially very, very harmful to the poor. If it passes, there's a very good chance that you will see some very healthy, good mission operations around the country close their doors, I'm afraid. And I, I really believe that because I know a lot of leaders that are that are much like me, very committed, but very convicted about God's word. And so if suddenly our hands are being tied by the government and who we can hire uh, or how, or even our hiring practices, uh, or if we're not able to discriminate on, you know, biological gender to determine where you're going to sleep in our shelter facility for the night, I, I think you'll see a lot of organizations that'll say, I can no longer do this with a clear conscience. And you know, the Bible is very clear that uh, we're not to be a people who compromise when it comes to what we're convicted about. So the Equality Act could be really, really difficult. And for, you know, the listeners, I, I don't, you know, we haven't defined what the Equality Act is, but it is... Uh, 
really an, an, an alteration of uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act that would include, my understanding is, LGBTQ right alongside race and gender that, that are mentioned, you know, at the end of almost every line of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And, and as, a, as a result of that, it would potentially interfere even with privately funded religious nonprofits in their hiring practices and their facilities and their accommodations for people. And that's going to be a really tough thing when you move into the Christian and faith-filled sector. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is, Doug, that uh, if the Equality Act passes, that there will be some nonprofit that will you know, challenge that if there's a lawsuit, take it to the Supreme Court. And I would only hope and pray that the Supreme Court would uphold that nonprofit's defense based on uh, First Amendment uh, freedom to exercise religion right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that we, I mean, we, we talked about perverse incentives. We talked about, you know, there's a number of ways in which the state really sort of messes things up. And this is one that isn't really directly related to poverty legislation. Um, it's something altogether, a different approach, different thought process, different policy aims and goals, but it could really affect, really affect things. Oh, yeah. And you know that the, the legislators that are, uh, you know, voting probably opposed or or not probably are not thinking about the impact necessarily that this could have on private charities that are doing good mm-hmm. work to help the poor. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners might be thinking, hey, I, I need to learn more. I need to know more. This is an area that I need to improve on how I work with people. Uh, maybe they're already doing charity work. Maybe they want to. And so you actually have a summit coming up uh, in May 2021. And I'd like to give you a chance to kind of share what that's going to be about, who's going to be there. Uh, I believe you told me it was in person, so you don't have to do it remotely, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we would... So go ahead and tell our audience about what you're up to there. Sure, yeah. It's called the True Charity Summit. It's an annual conference uh, this will be a day and a half, and it's at Missouri Southern State University in Joplin, Missouri. The title of this summit, we're, it's, we're calling it uh, Reclaiming Justice. The reason why is because the word justice is thrown around so much today. There are cries for justice, and but rarely are people thinking about, well, what does that really mean? And are we misusing this term that's really a virtue, justice. And, you know, where did, it, where did this come from? And so we're excited to share a lot of information about justice at this conference. And we think it is something that we should reclaim, that the, the, it seems like the far left is, is doing a lot in, in the, the, social, the idea of social justice. But what does that, what does that mean, right? I think it was uh, Hayek, who was at an, a conference in Australia, and he began his presentation on, I think it was on justice, and he said, for the last 10 years, I've been researching social justice, and I still don't know what that means. <laughs> and so <laughs> the idea of social justice, what is that? So we want to look at it from some different perspectives, like uh, what is economic justice? We'll have Anne Bradley will be here to to do a lecture, a series of lectures on economic justice. 
Um, we'll have uh, Dr. Patrick Gary, and he'll do historical justice. So he'll have a whole, um, uh, you know, a track on historical justice that he'll he'll deliver. Scott Allen will uh, do the social justice, but it's really all about biblical justice, and so he'll do that track, and I'll do a track on practical justice. What does that look like when we're really employing these things that we're learning about on the ground? The keynote speaker is uh, Lawrence Reed, Larry Reed, of uh, formerly and uh, the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, and just a fantastic lecturer. Uh, if you've ever heard Larry Reed, you, you know that. And his first opening lecture on the uh, base camp day, which will be May 18th, will be was Jesus a socialist? So that'll be his first lecture that he'll do, and that's be really really short. I mean, it's just one word, right? No. <laughs> yeah, well, there are a lot of people who think yes. And so he's going to spend a little bit of time unpacking that for us and learning why Jesus was not a socialist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but so May 18th and 19th, you know, your listeners can uh, go to truecharity.us and learn about uh, the summit under the events tab, sign up there. Um, and, and there will be a way to do a streaming, uh, but of course it'll be limited in the streaming. It'll just be one day and, uh, it'll be a particular set of classes. So we much rather have people to come. They can choose their own tracks they want to be involved with and, and be there in person for both days. Excellent. Well, I wish you well on that. I know a lot of people are really itching to do in-person events, so, I hope your turnout is going to do well. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, right. Hopefully we hit the timing just right where it'll be like everybody will want to be involved personally. But uh, we, do have, uh, we do have an online option as well. Yeah, cool. Well, James, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I have a hunch this won't be the last time we have a conversation. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Doug. Love what you guys are doing and, and appreciate you so much. And thanks for the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Oh,